You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories Podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers. Welcome to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories Podcast. My name is Matthew Price. Today I have Monica Zabinskis from Australia with us. Uh, a few episodes ago, we had an Australian keeper named Christy Williams who visited here on a keeper exchange. Um, and now we have another one of those. So we have Monica here today. She's been a keeper for nine years uh, at, the, um, at the Werribee Open Range Preserve in Australia, part of Zoos Victoria. And she is a Tasmanian devil expert. So uh, we're going to be chatting with her today, but uh, we'll go ahead and get the episode started with uh, the same way we always do, and that's just to ask you, Monica, how did you come to fall in love with animals, and uh, at what point in your life or your career path did you decide you wanted to uh, be a zookeeper and do it professionally? Great. Well, thanks, Matt. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, I When did my love for animals start? Well, I have a pretty interesting childhood. Where from the age of about six or seven, I grew up in the bush in uh, Victoria, Australia. My parents ran a wildlife shelter, a rehab shelter with um, that was 24 hours and not open to the public, but all about rehabbing injured and orphaned native wildlife. So from a young age, I was hand rearing koalas, wombats, kangaroos, echidnas, possums, everything pretty what much. What do you mean by young? How young are we talking? Seven years old. Seven years old. Okay. Yeah. So everyone that I talk to will go, oh my God, that's such an amazing upbringing. You're so lucky. And it's like, yeah, you didn't have a social life. Not that you did when you're seven anyway, but um, you'd come home from school and you'd walk the kangaroos and you'd feed everyone before you got to eat. So like, and you do your homework at 10 o'clock at night. So it was an interesting upbringing. And I think that that's obviously what paved my future. Um, And once I finished school, I went to uni to study zoology. I didn't actually want to be a zookeeper. Um, initially I wanted to do conservation work. I had this idea in my head that I wanted to do what my parents did, but in Africa. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I'm this Australian that's going to go to Africa and save the world. Um, and I did that. I didn't save the world, but, um, once I finished uni, I was still a bit unsure of where I wanted to go. Um, so I moved to South Africa and lived there for six months. Um, and volunteered at a contractual national park over there, um, just doing kind of like a park ranging position, but um, everything from rock packing dams to field surveys. And as I did a heap of work at the park, I um, you got to be involved in anything that was called like line captures and all of that sort of stuff. And that kind of sent me in the direction of what I wanted to do with zookeeping. Okay. I, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so let's go back to when you had to come home from school and walk uh, kangaroos and cuddle koalas and all that. Yeah. Now, were those part of like your daily chores? Like mom was not letting you uh, have any playtime or TV time or whatever it is uh, before you came home and helped take care of the animals? Or was that just something that was that something that you actually wanted to do? Or was it kind of like a expectation from parents? Oh, it was a it was an expectation. Um the shelter was pretty big and so it just was 
kind of what you had to do. Like some kids go home and wash the dishes and we'd go home and have to bottle feed kangaroos. And sometimes the phone would ring at like two o'clock in the morning and you'd have to go out and rescue a wombat hit by a car or something like that. So um, it was an interesting upbringing to that's, say the least. That's pretty crazy. Like, so I, I guess I, my next question is then, uh, did, did being, I guess, I don't know if forced is the right word, but have, being expected to help out with that stuff, that didn't like, you know, make you think like, well, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I, like I'm kind of like, yeah. like, I like doing it, but like I'm being forced to do it. I'm not like choosing to do it of my own accord. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's something yeah. that my parents do and I do it because of that. Um, no, it, the thought crossed your mind and, but then once I, I was probably like that in high school, which was why I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but then once I moved to Melbourne to go to uni and I wasn't living at the shelter anymore, um, then it started to become such a reality of how crucial that aspect of my life was in paving what I wanted to do with my future. Then I started to always wanting to be there. Mm. And then it became the, everyone that I went to uni with would come out to the shelter and we would, yeah, it sort of just became part of me. And um, yeah, I stopped resenting it and started to realize how valuable it was. But as a teenager, I did resent it a lot. And I kind of, I loved animals. I've always loved animals. So I did love the shelter work, but um, you know, it, um, yeah, as a teenager, it maybe wasn't the, the yeah, favorite I was, that's, thing that's, every day. That's yeah. kind of the age I was wondering, because I can see, like, when you're in the seven-year-old to, like, middle school range, it's still, like, super cool. Yeah, it's still cool. And then you get to high school, and you're like, oh, I want to go hang out with my friends, but yeah. uh, I got to come home, and uh, I got to bottle plead a koala, poor me, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, no one ever gives you sympathy, because when you complain yeah, about right. having to go home and walk a wombat, they're like... What's your problem? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then I guess when you got to university, did you know right away that you were going to pursue a, a career in, with animals or, um, you know, is that something you got towards the end of your, your collegiate? I knew I was going to pursue something with animals. Um, I toyed around with vet science. Um, I knew that I wanted something to do with conservation. So zookeeping wasn't necessarily on the cards. Um but I did a zoology degree and um, that's kind of when I was at uni in my final years I majored in zoology and did some units that were actually zoo based units and that kind of made me a bit more interested in the captive side of things um, and I, I was always pretty mixed the upbringing I had with with animals um, and hand rearing them and, and the rehab side made me quite interested in the captive sense but I was always very torn between animals in captivity and doing stuff for them in the, sure, in the sure, wild. Sure. So it was a matter of how I meshed those two together, which was how I've ended up in the specific zoo that I'm in now. Okay. Uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but so now that you've done a little bit of both, uh, both zookeeping and a little bit of conservation work, uh, but you're still a zookeeper. So is that fair to say then that you like the zookeeping work better or is it just harder to do the conservation work or why have you made the decision to stay on the, the captive side of things? Um, well, it's very much because of the zoo that I'm in. So um, you mentioned before at the start that I work for Werribee Zoo. Um, I actually work for Zoos Victoria. Werribee's one of the properties. I was only there for a short amount of time, but I'm at their Hillsville Sanctuary location, which is oh, where all of their... I knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> That's fine. I did work at Werribee, but certainly haven't for eight years. But, um, but uh, for me, I love zookeeping, but it has to be some kind of real 
connection with conservation. So I, I mean, I'm loving my time here, but I really cherish that I work for Zoos Victoria and I'm directly involved in the conservation projects. I think if I wasn't um, and was doing zookeeping that didn't allow me to do field-based stuff and research at the same time, um, I would still love my day-to-day job, but it wouldn't be as fulfilling as what it is now. So I don't think that I would settle on zookeeping anywhere. It's specifically where I am that um, is what I'm really passionate about. Okay, so you get to do, as part of your paid job, you get to go out and do like whatever devil conservation research or, or whatever, uh, you know, field work or whatever. Um, like they send you to go do that uh, in addition um, to your normal responsibilities or you have kind to seek of, those most out of, on your own? You do have to seek it out on your own. Um, they're pretty supportive of us going and doing that. Um, but first and foremost is our keeping role. So, you know, generally we'd have to work out how to do that in a bit of holiday time as well as a bit of work support time. But um, I do a lot of research-based work as part of my job within the captive population. Um, and then with that, I've been able to um, do some field-based stuff as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I, I do want to get into the devils in a minute here, um, but let's go back to university a little bit. So you said after university, you went to South Africa to do mm-hmm. some stuff. Was that uh, part of your college program or was that afterwards? You decided, I'm going to just go to South Africa and I'm going to do some do some conservation research. Was that all on yep. your own? it was all on my own. Um, It had nothing to do with the uni that I was at. I finished uni um, and I was like, what am I going to do now? And I didn't want to go straight into higher education at that point. So I just started, I didn't have any money. So I didn't want to like go to Africa and pay a ridiculous amount of money to pet lions or something like that. That wasn't what I was interested in. So I just emailed, I think, thousands of places and just kept researching till I found a park that was right for me and that did conservation work and wasn't just a a park that encouraged people to go across, spend thousands of dollars for two weeks of volunteer work. So I found this park called Marikali Contractual National Park, which was uh, privately owned on loan from the government because there's a number of parks that... Um, Uh, situated like this because the national parks can't afford to buy the land so then there's people that own that land from other countries um, that can put it into conservation so Mm. it doesn't get turned into farmland so I found that park and you didn't have to pay anything to volunteer but you had to commit a minimum of three to six months Um, they would put you up in a little house and you basically worked for them for nothing and then whenever anything cool happened in the park you got to be involved so whilst my day-to-day work was um, a lot of labor a lot of park ranging type um, chores and jobs around the park. The park was 200,000 hectares, so it was pretty big and it wasn't open to the public. So it was a big five national park. Um, and just to, I mean, I could do a week of podcasts on my time there. Uh, <laughs> so I won't go into too much, but just as a snapshot within the first week, it was um, tracking an elephant with a busted knee, unfortunately having to euthanize that. But um you know, then darting a line from a helicopter that got out of that park, buffalo capture, rhino capture, getting um, brown hyena out of snare traps and leopards and releasing them into the park, um, game capture of heaps of different antelopes. Um, yeah, it was amazing. 
That's across six months, not just in a yeah, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a, that'd be a pretty spectacular day. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, right. Yeah, Monday, but uh, and nearly died a number of times. But it made me develop this love for Africa, um, and I've kept going back there. And now I guess I'm a bit torn between working with African wildlife and Australian conservation based stuff. So. I've decided to stick with the Australian conservation stuff and get my kicks from Africa by just visiting there. Um, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, just to back up for a minute, uh, just so the audience knows what you mean by Big Five Park. Uh, what, what's the what's the Big Five? What's the Big Five? Yeah. Oh, is that a bit of a test? Yeah, that's a little <laughs> bit of a test. <laughs> so the Big Five, and people often confuse them because they think that, that they're the five... Um, like most famous animals in Africa, but they're traditionally called the big five because they were the most dangerous animals to hunt in Africa. So that's lion, leopard, um, black rhino, (laughs) elephant. How many have I got? Four. One more. Buffalo. Water buffalo, right? Cape buffalo. Cape buffalo. Yeah. So, and... It's horrendous, all of the big five memorabilia that you see that has a white rhino on it, I want to smash and put in the bin. Everything has a white rhino on it. It's true. But it's a black rhino. Yeah. White rhinos are not the well, most dangerous. Well, you know, most, so since we're here on the rhino topic, why don't you tell everybody how to tell the difference between a white rhino and a black rhino? Because how do you know that the, the logo or yep. whatever is, is not a, so, a black rhino? White rhino and what where the name white rhino actually came from is... Um, it came from a Dutch term where they actually described their mouth as being wide and it was described as the white rhino um, that in English translated to white but it's meaning that they've got wide lips and the black rhino have a hook lip so um, white rhino typically grazes um, found in more of the open savanna black rhino hook lipped browse feeders and if you're watching from a distance and they're a fair way away from you but they've got a baby how do you tell whether they're a black rhino or a white rhino Matt? are you quizzing me oh i am i have no idea i've never actually worked rhinos before <laughs> well a way that you can tell is if they're running and whether the baby is in front or behind of mum so if the baby is in front of mum then typically it's going to be a white rhino um, because they generally will be out in the plains. So if something is chasing them, they want to always know where Bub is and it's all open so they don't have to clear a path for Bub. Whereas if it's black rhino, generally through scrubland, mum will be making a pathway and baby can follow. Wow. There you go. I, we've dropped the mic. We don't <laughs> need to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> no, I was expecting just an explanation of their lips because that's what I know. <laughs> and now we have a description of how to tell the difference between... Uh, from a distance that's on safari so if you guys go on safari uh there you go re-listen to this episode and listen to monica's uh, knowledge about how to tell the difference that's that's incredible uh i didn't know that at all uh, cool um okay so you were there you worked at that park um didn't you did correct me if i'm wrong didn't you mention you you left and came back to work at another park was it the same park um i <clears throat> Yeah, I after I finished there, my whole time I spent there and then came back to Australia, started working for a conservation company for a number of years in Australia and then um, on endangered species recovery work um, and then got into Zoos Victoria after that. And from being in Zoos Victoria, then I went back with some of the conservation programs that okay. Zoos Victoria do there. So that was as part of the zoo. Um, still on my own, it wasn't funded with the zoo, but it was to go and see some of the projects that they do more up in northern um, 
areas of mm. Africa, Kenya, Uganda, um, and then traveled a lot just on my own through those areas. Well, that's really cool. So you had all that crazy experience before you even applied to be a zookeeper. So yep. I would imagine that made you a pretty attractive candidate. Did you I didn't get, get your first job? First I was going to ask, did nope. you get the first job you applied for? Or? No, and that's pretty much because, um, well, in Australia... It's very, like, something that's overwhelmed me being here is just the sheer number of zoos that are in America, um, zoos that have exotic species. So in Australia, um, you know, yes, we're a big country. We certainly don't have anywhere near the numbers of people that you guys have. So our zoos are quite limited and there are a lot of wildlife parks um, and that's a bit easier to get into. But I wasn't interested in getting into private wildlife parks. So I tried for a long time to get into Zoos Victoria um didn't get in the first round um and then worked for a conservation company for a few years and then went back and got in no problems but yeah even with all that experience um still didn't get in first round with like 10 years experience with captive and wild stuff because <laughs> victoria is a, a hard def- place to get into that's a little bit it was def- yeah, yeah it was yeah, yeah. um but it was it was a very competitive time to get in there and now if you had that level of experience you'd probably get in straight away but they changed the whole way that they were taking mm. people in well that's what i keep telling myself okay <laughs> so then uh i know now you work with tasmanian devils which is yep. super awesome we now have them here at san diego zoo uh um, i think we're one of two currently is that correct that would have them in the states something like that a very small number yeah i'm not quite sure how many we sent four of ours to Albuquerque. So okay. I know there's definitely two, okay. but I'm sure that there's a couple more than that now. But still, it's pretty Very recent. Very small, Very yeah. recent and yep. only a few that's happening. So when you, how did you get involved with that? Was that the first thing you did when you started with Zoo Victoria? Was straight away to tra- Tasmanian Devils or did they, or where did you start out, I guess? Yeah. Uh, how no, did you I get s- there? Yeah, well, um, I don't know if you wanted me to mention how the way it works getting into Zoos Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. The whole process would be great. Because that kind of really paves how I ended up at Devils. So with Zoos Victoria, um, if you are an entry-level zookeeper and you don't have experience as a zookeeper in a um, accredited zoo, you are what's considered pre-trade. So what you have to do is you apply for what's called their keeper pool, which once a year or sometimes twice a year, depending on how many people they need to hire, they do an intake where it's... um, advertised but it's not an actual job yet that's just to get into the keeping pool so there there's usually six seven eight hundred applicants to get into that and they interview about 30 people in one day so it's a group interview a whole day and then they shortlist from there and then about 15 of you 10 to 15 get into the actual keeper pool once that happens then you get emailed the jobs as they come up and it's only those people that can apply for those jobs and that way they don't have to be sifting through a thousand applicants every time there's a job that makes sense so that you know a lot of people are really stressed out with that way because then you have to decide whether to take contracts um so generally when you're getting into zoos victoria unless you're a trade level keeper with a lot of experience you will not get a permanent position straight out you have to be prepared to take short contracts and that was really stressful for me i was working full-time at a conservation company on a recovery team for critically endangered eastern barred bandicoots and i had to make the decision to leave that for a a two-and-a-half-day-a-week contract at Melbourne Zoo on reptiles that was lasting for two-and-a-half months. And I was like, have I just made the worst decision of my life? Um, But uh, I could end up working part-time for the conservation company that I was at 
and take the position at Melbourne Zoo. So, um, and, you know, I was always told once you get in, if you're a good keeper, um, uh, you will get more contracts. And once you've been there for a little while, then you'll get the opportunity for a full-time contract. So I started at Melbourne Zoo. Um, so would it, um, I guess, would it, would it have been a bad idea to turn down the contract? Would they have been less likely to offer you another one if you're like, no, this one isn't quite right for me. I want to wait for something else. Yeah, look, I mean, it doesn't necessarily look too bad, but um, it depends. If you apply for a position and they then you knock it back when you're at contract level, then that doesn't look very good. I could have just not applied for it and that would have been fine. But when you're in the keeper pool, you apply for everything pretty much. Like it's sort of, you know, once you've gotten in, you've made yeah. the decision that you're prepared to to take a cut and you just live out of a car for the first two years of your life as a zookeeper <laughs> and then it's fine. But um, so at Zoos Victoria, there's three properties. And so once you're in the keeper pool, you get all of the jobs for all three properties. Okay. And so that can be difficult because really you're told you should apply for any position, but between one of, between two of the properties is a two and a half hour drive. So if you live on the other side of Victoria, you really can't apply for jobs at Hillsville. Um, but just Melbourne Zoo is the city zoo, very similar to San Diego Zoo, just not quite as big. Werribee Zoo is our open range zoo, um, mostly African species, um, and I guess quite similar to, to the, to the safari thing. park, as people might know it. And then Hillsville is our all-Australian natives, and that's where a lot of our uh, breeding programs for the actual um, recovery programs that we work on is based out of there. So my first contract was at Melbourne Zoo on reptiles, um, and part of my work with wildlife rehab was um, snake handling. So I have a venomous snake handling certificate as well. Not that I really could use that that much at Melbourne Zoo, but um, it did help me get my first contract, I imagine, and my sure. experience with wildlife did. So that was good. And then um, whilst I was still doing that contract, a contract came up at Werribee Zoo. I'd been volunteering at Werribee. So I was, you know, to get into Zoo Victoria, you got to kind of do it tough. For the first six months, I was working seven days a week. So still three days at my conservation job, three days at Melbourne Zoo, and then the other day um, volunteering at Werribee Zoo. And then um, because of my volunteering, then I got offered a longer contract at Werribee, worked at both Melbourne and Werribee for quite a while. Werribee, I was on mostly hoofstock um, and their open range section, um, a bit of rhinos and giraffes. Um, and yeah, loved it out there. It was a beautiful place. And then actually um, because of my background and this is where it kind of sometimes you can just get a call from one of the managers to offer you a contract if you're already in the keeping pool so I got a call from Hillsville because of my background with endangered species asking whether I would take a position on their threatened species team so people would say that's lucky um, I say it's because of the work that I put in in the years beforehand but um, you know sometimes that happens and I was like wow you know that's kind of the dream area to end up in I didn't know it was going to be in Devils at the time um and then I took that position it was part-time to begin with quickly turned into full-time and after a couple of years turned into permanent and now I've been on Devils for over six years full-time that's that's a pretty crazy journey um yeah. I, I know your pain of working the seven days a week I worked very early on in my career, I worked uh, three or four days at San Francisco Zoo, but I was an on-call as needy keeper. So sometimes I only worked one day there, and then the rest of the week I would work at the small museum. Mm. And I, I worked seven days a week for about three months. 
Never again. And sometimes you can just do it. <laughs> Never like, again. While I was doing it, I was fine. And it was full days as well. It was like eight till five every single day. And I lived an hour from most of the places that I worked. But then after I finished doing seven days a week, then I started to be like, when I couldn't have just two days of my weekend, when I could only have one, I was like, how do I deal with this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't even imagine not having two days off every week right now. So. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into the devils. What was there anything particular that drew you to the, to that species in particular? Um, you know, I, I guarantee that most listeners here don't know even know what a Tasmanian devil is, except for from watching Looney Tunes and they spin <laughs> around in a little tornado. So I guess talk about the species a little bit, um, and I guess what exactly you do with them. Maybe your conservation work a little mm-hmm. bit. And I do want you two to speak on uh, what devil it's called devil disease. devil facial tumor disease. Yeah, I knew it was there somewhere. Uh, so yeah, talk a little about about all that stuff, okay. and uh, I'm sure I'll have questions along the way. No worries. Well, um, I didn't really know whether I wanted to, like, I wasn't drawn to devils and sought out a position on devils. It kind of found me in that um, I was very interested in getting onto threatened species at Hillsville um, and uh, ended up on the devil team. And once I started working with them, and when I started, we had 120 devils. So it's a pretty big program. Um, We don't have that many now. Now we're sitting on about 50 um, through releases and a a number of different reasons. And um, once I started working with this species, I pretty quickly fell in love with with the species and just how unique they are and um i guess i'm always drawn to something that needs help and needs attention and so um hillsville started a breeding program with devils um back in 1996 uh where we had 20 come in from the wild and start a breeding program so 10 males and 10 females so when i started we still had those founders and it was we need to breed these guys as quickly as we can so a bit about tasmanian devils um i could talk about them for hours but in a nutshell uh for those that don't know they're the world's largest carnivorous marsupial um and so they do have a pouch just like kangaroos and koalas um they're not related to dogs or bears or anything that they often get confused with um their closest relative would be what's considered what's called a um, quoll which is almost like a marsupial cat-like animal um next to that is a tiny little marsupial mouse so they really are super unique they um in the wild, unfortunately, they're threatened by a contagious cancer called devil facial tumor disease, which got into the population in 1996. And since then, it's wiped out over 85 to 90% of their whole population in the wild. Wow. Um, now their population in the wild only exists in Tasmania, hence their name. But historically, they actually existed over much of Australia. So, um, But fossil remains date back about 400 years. So now you know there is a lot of talk about getting them back onto mainland australia as part of their recovery and that's something zoos victoria is involved in but um as you can understand 400 years is a long time mainland australia has a lot of other things that have changed since then foxes feral cats so it's a big challenge but that's part of what we're working on with our program is seeing whether that can become a bit more of a reality but on a day-to-day level at hillsville we've got three real real quick uh do you, can you uh, talk, speak to how that disease came about? Did it how it got into the population? Did it did it come from another species or something? Or like where did it I guess originate? Well, that's one of the challenges with this disease is that we actually don't know for sure. Okay. So there's a lot of theories. Um, some of the theories suggest that they that it came from a chemical that was used on gum plantations in Tasmania around the same time. 
it's certainly a theory. We can't say that it actually has any link. Most likely what's happened is it's developed from a genetic mutation in one individual and then that's been able to spread contagiously to other devils. Um, being a contagious cancer, there's only four contagious cancers in the world. Um, two of them are in devils. There's now a second devil facial tumour disease, um, which is really crappy. Um <laughs> What is the vector for, I mean, like when you say contagious, like if one rubs faces with another one, they're going to get it like 100%? It has to, no, it has to be, it's not sexually transmitted. Um, It has to be transmitted through, um, through the direct contact of cancerous cells. So it's spread between them biting each other, fighting over food, biting during mating, um, I don't believe it's sexually transmitted, but it can be transmitted through mating because of the way that they'll bite each other, was, but it's not actually sexually transmitted, if that it. makes sense. I was going to say they bite a lot, right? That's they one do, of their yeah. things, so... <laughs> yeah, and, um, but something that's really interesting is a cancer so contagious doesn't transfer from mother to young either through milk. Wow. Um, so in saying that, often babies that have a mother with the disease will contract the disease if they're already at the stage where mum's carrying them around in her mouth or play fighting with them. But if you catch a mum that's diseased and her joeys are still completely within pouch, um, then often the joeys can be reared and released um, even though mum will not survive. So it's a pretty devastating disease. It, it can fatal? It's fatal. 100%? 100% fatal, although there has been some new advances that are happening um, all the time. There's some reports that say that the disease has started to... Um, like devils are starting to develop their own level of immunity to the disease, which is really interesting. Um, it's all in that every day there's a new report that's a release from some scientist in Australia about the next stage of the disease. So it is a little bit confusing to give super accurate information, sure, but sure. basically at the moment the cancer, there isn't a cure. It's transmitted. Um, once it's been transmitted, it can take up to 12 months for the tumour to turn into cancer cells, and then they're usually dead within three to six months after that. But during that time that the cancer is in their system but they haven't developed into tumours, it's still contagious. So when they're out every second, third, fourth night, feeding, communally feeding and fighting over food, they're transmitting their cancer. The thing that's really unique about this cancer and why it's so um, catastrophic for devils is that when you look at a disease affecting any species even humans what generally happens is it affects the lowered immune system first the ones that are really sick the old the young um that's how diseases generally work this particular cancer has been able to affect a level of the devil's immune system that basically masks what's called the mhc component of the cancer that your immune system would recognize so without getting into all the sides of the genetics behind it basically um the component that your immune system sees and starts to go, that's not mine and I'm going to fight it, which is why an immune system that's compromised doesn't work. With devils, that has been able to become invisible to the devil's immune system. So the devil gets the disease and whether they are prime of their life, super healthy, fit animals, they contract the disease and they die. And their body doesn't work out a way that they can, they don't know that they're sick, which is why this disease has been able to spread pretty prolifically through the population. Um, In that, though, that's where the new vaccine that's just been released this year um, is really promising because the vaccine has developed... It doesn't vaccinate the devils or cure them from the cancer by any means, but what it does is it allows the immune system... it, It has a protein 
that binds to that MHC component of the cancer, which basically makes it visible again. So I know I'm getting a bit scientific no, here, no, but it means that the devils that are vaccinated, if they're really if they're unwell, old, young, they're going to get the disease anyway if their immune system doesn't work. But the ones that are healthy, their immune system then a part of it binds to that cancer and turns that switch back on pretty much that allows their immune system to see it and can fight the disease worked really well in in studies in captivity when they're exposed to the cancer there's a lot more of that out there in the wild so we're in the stage where those devils have been released with the vaccine and now we're waiting to know whether they'll develop their own level of antibodies having been vaccinated in the wild that's happening right now (laughs) i have just a snapshot yeah i have i have like a million questions um so the the cancer that's going through the wild population right now uh once they are there i assume there are people monitoring like do we know where all the wild populations are are they being monitored at all times like if they see one that is uh you know has developing symptoms of it like is it already too late to like separate that individual from the population to prevent it from spreading further or like how do they manage I guess the spread of it at this mm. point of the it's wild a, population, if it's such a rampant disease. It's a really difficult one. Um, the disease spread a lot more before people really, um, uh, I mean, yes, there is a lot of research monitoring the populations in the wild, but Tasmania is also, there's areas of Tasmania where it's kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of untouchable like forest that, no one really knows what the populations are like. That's where people still suggest that the Tasmanian tiger exists because there's areas of Tasmania that people just haven't gone into or don't go into, which is really cool that there's a place like that. But it makes monitoring of species quite difficult to know exactly what's happening in the wild. We know that there hasn't been any completely localised extinction of devils anywhere in Tasmania. We just know that the populations have decreased because of the recapture rates, but we don't actually know how much of the population is left. So there's a lot of researchers from different universities, some that San Diego Zoo are actually helping fund. There's different research about the disease that I know you guys are involved in, um, which is pretty cool. But um, the research ranges from how the populations are recovering in some areas to fire stuff to disease stuff to everything because devils were considered a pest species you know only in the last 20 years so there's actually a lot of stuff that we don't even know about them um but you know there's areas that we're we're just learning this year um that devils they're they're changing so they are evolving we think potentially with this cancer which is really amazing so it's not all doom and gloom as to that they're they're going to be wiped out in the wild um new reports are saying that some areas of tasmania the devils are taking a lot longer for it to turn into tumor cells um there are devils that are breeding much younger than they ever have been known to be able to um historically all the all the information says devils will only breed when they reach two years of age that they only can breed at that they're now breeding at one in the wild probably because the older animals just don't exist anymore so there is a lot of of evidence to suggest that devils are starting to make a recovery on their own but it's just a matter of you know okay so it's not it's not passed genetically no so there aren't cases where the, there are animals that are carriers of this but aren't exhibiting signs of it. No, not as okay. far as we know. Okay. But, um, you know, when you actually think about it, 1996, it's still a pretty young cancer, really. Um, so there's still a lot that we actually don't know about the cancer. Um, but generally speaking, no, they, they're not carriers as such. Um, but, yeah, 
at this stage it's still um, fatal for any devil. And in the last few months, this second cancer, the reason why it's been called a second cancer and not an actual uh, mutation or variation from the first is it's completely different at the genetic level. So it has a different sex chromosome um, at the genetic level, which means it can't have mutated from the first cancer, which is okay. very scary yeah, because that means sure. that it has developed in an individual now, which means that it could develop in a captive individual Right now, so there's a right. lot of questions at the moment with the whole recovery program of devils, um, but that that's like another hour. <laughs> Speaking itself. of another hour, uh, we are going to do our first two-part episode <laughs> with Monica because there's about a million more things I want to ask her, and we have to go see uh, a coworker for a birthday party. So um, <laughs> uh, we're gonna go do that, and I hope you guys enjoyed the first half hour or so with Monica from Australia and from. The Healesville Sanctuary, not the Werribee <laughs> Open Range Preserve. Uh, and we'll be back with you guys uh, soon with another episode, uh, part two of Monica Zobinskis. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory. 